Welcome to the ProcureTech Podcast, where we aim to excite and inspire you about how technology will shape our profession's future. I'm your host, James Meads, and I worked in corporate procurement for 16 years before starting my own business as a content creator and consultant in the procurement technology space. I'm deeply convinced that procurement must become less technocratic and embrace the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity if we're ever going to shake off our image of being a process-obsessed, box-ticking function. You definitely won't find vanilla content on here, and we're not afraid to tackle some controversial topics and tell it like it really is. So if that's your thing, now let's jump right into this week's episode. Yes, hello and welcome to another episode of the ProcureTech podcast. We are the official podcast of procurementsoftware.site, where you can search and find every procurement technology solution that your heart could wish for, all in one space. We have over 330 solutions listed on the site, and it's completely free to use. Now, my guest today is a multiple published author, procurement training business owner, and also recently a procurement SaaS entrepreneur. So this gentleman has definitely got his fingers in a lot of pies and is hedging his bets. Uh, Jonathan O'Brien from Positive Purchasing, CEO of Positive Purchasing. A very warm welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. And that's a, that's a great intro. I thought, who is this person? That, And then I realized it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an absolute pleasure, actually, to be on your podcast uh, a couple of months ago. Um, yeah. you, you guys make it really fun. So definitely taking some key learnings from uh, from how you from how you and, uh, and, and Phil do it. Yeah, it's a, so... It, I think procurement should be fun. You know, we, we make it too dull um, uh, along the way, but it should be fun. Yes, make procurement fun again in a Donald Trump voice. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so your company, Positive Purchasing, recently celebrated 20 years in business. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. I'd like to spend some time first of all, to explore some of the changes that you've observed through the visor of a business owner. Yeah. So we, I mean, we, see, we see this a lot of times that people come on and talk about how procurement's changed on the other side of the table as a practitioner. But yep. what are the biggest changes that you've seen in procurement over these past 20 years? And just to contextualize it for the listener, you started out as a training business and obviously you've pivoted out into much more since then. Absolutely. Well, we were, were reflecting on this only last week when we were popping the champagne corks. So, uh, you know, we've come a long way in 20 years. And 20 years ago, we set the business up originally because we had the idea that sustainable procurement was the thing that the world needed and was ready for. We had the skills we knew about how we could drive sustainability in supply chains. And all of our suppliers said, well, that's really lovely. You know, we'll talk about that later, but can you come and help us save some money? Can you come and help us uh, negotiate better with suppliers or manage our suppliers more closely. So the business kind of grew up becoming a business helping procurement functions in big global organizations be really good at procurement and really good at negotiation using category management, supplier relationship management, and best practice negotiation, which we then figured out how that works in the procurement context. And, and really the focus 20 years ago was very much how do we get best price? Uh, and and functions were transitioning, desperately trying to transition from being tactical functions to more strategic, 
Some would make it, others would just frail around um, trying to, to, to do that and never quite get there. But it was, it was about price. And over the years, that price focus changed to cost focus and a recognition that actually, if you start looking end to end, looking at total costs, then, you know, you can unlock much, much more. And I would say kind of three years ago, that had shifted more to how do we get more value from our supply relationships? How do we get our suppliers to help us innovate and bring innovation to us? How do we manage risk? And then, of course, the world all went crazy, went upside down. And really, that shifted again. And today, that focus is very much on how do we get the stuff in the first place? It's on security of supply. It's on uh, how do we now drive sustainability? Because sustainability is, of course, now part of security of supply post-pandemic. And the imperative to act has really sort of just come and slapped many people in the face. It's always been there, but most people have conveniently ignored it. So suddenly, there are these new drivers getting the stuff and, and, and ensuring that we can have security of supply and taking sustainability seriously, as well as keeping cost under control, which is about how do we mitigate price rises, not get the lowest price anymore, but how do we just keep it in, in track? Yeah, and I'll pick up on a couple of things there because there are a couple of points that I would like to touch on, but I think mitigating price rises is a big one. And you know, we could have the debate all day around, you know, will, fi will finance ever recognize the contribution that procurement does to negotiate away price increases? And that's another debate in itself. But I do think that mitigation of inflation, certainly for the next two or three years, perhaps, you know, beyond that, if there's some financial crash at some point that we, we might see the other, you know, see the other side of the coin with deflation. But that is becoming more and more prominent. So, what conversations are you having? I mean, negotiation training is one of the pillars of your business. What conversations are you having then with procurement leaders if they've obviously got to pay for training that their organization might not get recognition from, from the wider business potentially for that? It's, is it a difficult conversation? Well, it, it, it kind of is, but at the same time, it's a no-brainer as well. So, And recently, we've we've been talking to procurement organization and sales teams. So for the negotiation offering that we have, we also train sales teams. We have to be careful that we don't you know, train the sales <laughs> teams and the procurement teams where they're actually talking to each other because that would be a conflict. But sales teams come to us, say, hey, we're coming up against buyers who are trained in red sheet negotiation and uh, we're struggling. Um, can you come and train our sales teams? So salespeople have been approaching me saying, we're trying to get this price increase in and we're coming up against a buyer that won't let us. What do we do? So we're in this world where people don't quite know how to navigate it on the sales side as well as on the procurement side. So on the procurement side, um, the sort of conversations are around how do you help, how do you equip a procurement person to be able to handle a very different sort of negotiation where you're fighting off a price rise? And a lot of that is about actually understanding your position, getting behind the data uh, and understanding exactly what the components of the increase are, which we're not very good at doing. You know, it's very easy to say prices have risen by 20%. Okay, what prices, when? Uh, and, uh, you know, which are the components that are 20 and which are eight? You know, that sort of thing. So... Equipping procurement people to to do that has been a bit of a no-brainer. But the other thing, the other thing that's perhaps made the conversations difficult is everybody is flat out trying to figure out which way is up. And, and that's how I described the last few years. It's been around, okay, we've got price rises, the business is putting us under pressure. How do we fend that off? 
Okay, we've got new legislation we need to comply with for sustainability. Uh, uh, okay, we can't get the stuff. How do we how do we actually sort the supply chain out? So it's been firefighting. Um, it's been a stressful time to be in procurement. So we've found that we've been providing different types of training to help um, and uh, to, you know, we're really kind of working alongside procurement teams saying, right, let's help hold, hold the fire hose with you and show you exactly what you need to point it at. That's the sort of stuff we've been doing in the last few years. Yeah, it completely makes sense as well. And that kind of brings me on to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which touches a little bit on, you know, you mentioned sustainability and COVID in a, in, in a couple of your answers. Being gradually then transitioning your business away from being a, a sort of more traditional in-person negotiation training business. And you mentioned sustainability, supply chain risk, and with that digital transformation and visibility of the supply chain category strategies, all of that is encompassed in that. What changes have you seen post-COVID and how much of that do you think has been accelerated by COVID versus how much of it's been accelerated by just a more general transition away from in-person work over the years and, and digital tools becoming you know, slowly but surely more at the forefront of what's driving procurement? Yeah, um, the pandemic has, has undoubtedly been the catalyst here, but there was a sort of slow thing happening. So when, when we started the business 20 years ago, as you said, we were pretty much a training business. We did consulting as well. We would assess capability and we'd provide process and toolkits. And, and that's still a key uh, core part of what we do in a very different way now. Um, but the training that we used to do would literally be, let's fly 20 people from all over the world to a central location and you'll come and do some training for us and we'll go away and and everything will be different. Um, and, and indeed, in some cases, that training could be transformational if done well and the organization was able to drive in the governance to sustain the new behaviors, the new ways of working. Um, but when you think about that, you know, that's a pretty inefficient way of doing things. That's a pretty... Um, non-environmentally sound way of doing things, especially if you're flying 20 people long distances, especially if they're flying business class, as in many organizations is the norm. But we, we struggled to, to drive that change previously. Indeed, as, as early as 2009, we built a, a, a broadcast studio to do live online instructor-led training because our clients were saying, look, can we, how can we take the travel out of this? So we built the facility. We had an online platform where you could go and do an online classroom. This was before Teams and Zoom and stuff like that enabled this stuff. Wow. Um, and we had that using some emerging tech at the time. And we could deliver training online, interactive engagement. Nobody bought it. Uh, all the clients said, yeah, we really want this. And we said, well, here it is. They said, yeah, let's just fly everyone around the world again. Mm. <laughs> and what we came up against was this resistance to to engage in the tech or to try something new. Then, of course, COVID hit. We were ready to go because suddenly, thought, okay, we'll take this online. Teams and Zoom and all the desktop applications, which meant you could go straight through a company's corporate IT policy um, and and have something approved on the desktop. And we could connect our TV studios into the the desktop applications that were there, add some interactive tools so we can engage with with, with people. Um, and suddenly we had transformed training. Now, what had changed there is this was forced upon people. So prior to that, people had been doing these sorts of calls. Some did it well. Others were still resisting the tech. 
And there was a report from McKinsey that said during the pandemic, we advanced 10 years in terms of our adoption of technology. So that's yes. the key enabler here. It took the pandemic, it took people to adopt Teams and to say, okay, how do I use this thing? And suddenly it became mainstream. So we pivoted and of course we were there ready to go uh, and we had everything that, that, that we needed. So a lot of it's been accelerated and it's here to stay. It's not going away. Yeah, and it's incredible, isn't it? When COVID hit, some pretty big companies, when they moved all of their, when they moved all of their trainings and their, and, and they were doing webinars to try and, to, to try and generate leads, some of their webinars were absolutely terrible. Yeah, just yeah. not only, the, the, okay, the presenters were really stiff, but just the way that it was set up and organized, it was, it was really bad. So yeah, I could see how, how you and some of the other players at the forefront of this could, you know, very easily just click your fingers and switch, whereas others had to sort of scramble around. And it's a little bit like process, manual processes versus having, versus having at least do, having done something on the digital transformation side before COVID hit. Yeah, and it's worth just saying that you, you've got to, to do it well, you've got to absolutely blow people away. So the, the people that are doing online training, it has to be super high energy, it has to be super engaging. It's got to be cameras on, no hiding behind black screens saying, oh, my dog had the webcam. You know, you've, it's got to be <laughs> super good. Uh, and I was watching um, my, my son who was uh, uh, coming to his final year of school. So they were doing lectures online and... It was appalling because none of the, st- the teachers knew how to use the tech. Yeah. And of course, the, what the students were doing was taking a picture of themselves sat looking at the camera and p- putting it up as a, a still frame. And the teachers weren't even noticing that the, the pupil wasn't actually there. So, you know, you, you can't transition online and just, you know, just show people a PowerPoint slide and talk about it. It's got to blow people away and it's got to I mean there is not a dull moment. It's got to be super high energy from start to finish. What are you seeing in terms of the backlash against remote work? Because there is a bit of it now, especially from more prominent figures. You know, yeah. Elon Musk came out and said something. Lord Sugar, for those of you in the UK that know him, he's essentially the guy in the UK that, that does The Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, and Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, they've all come out denouncing it. Yeah. I, 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 what sort of trends are you seeing? I mean, is training sort of staying online or are you starting to see people demand that you do in-person training more as well? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So there's, there's going to be a backlash. There's all, there always was. And the people that you call out there, um, those would be the ones who would, uh, who would say that because they're the leaders of business that want the productivity to go up another notch. No, it's here to stay, but perhaps, um, uh, much more blended. So, you know, it swung the other way fully online after COVID came back to, you know, let's do the hybrid model. In fact, I would say the vast majority of our clients are now hybrid models. So many of them have, even um, reconfigured their head offices to say, well, people won't have desks, but you know, you'll come in and there'll be a desk. So you'll work three days in the office, two days at home. And that seems to be the sort of pattern, more flexibility there, not across every job and sector, but in professional type sectors. So, and, and I think there are a number of drivers here because what the pandemic did was gave companies the opportunity just to take out their travel budgets. Um, and prior to that, um, you know, we'd worked with a lot of procurement teams desperately trying to work on the travel category. And of course, the biggest issue was travel policy compliance. And in some big uh, companies where lots of travel budget 
are very easy for people just to be flying around the world because they want to have a meeting, because they, you know, they want to trip out. You know, a lot of that's still going on. So it's, it's sort of taken all of that away to make travel, business travel, much more essential rather than nice to have. You have the converse argument that says, yeah, but you need to get to know people. Yeah, you still need to do that. You need to do some face-to-face stuff, get to know who they are, socialize with them. But the research shows that if you do that once and then the next meetings are online and perhaps you're coming back together for a face-to-face in a year's time, actually that's just as good because you can do the social stuff online, but you need to have that connection with somebody first. So a bit of a backlash, but the it's not going to go back to face-to-face. Um, for training, uh, we I would say 70% is now live online instructor-led. 30% has gone back to face-to-face. And that'll be clients that are saying, we want to do this face-to-face because we've got an opportunity for everybody to come together for a global uh, event. And we want to make three days of that a training event. That's when it really works. And then the next one's online. Yeah, that's so it's really just about utilizing the travel budget as smartly as possible and and just not wasting people's time by making them fly extra for something if you're going to have like you say maybe once or twice a year and an on an offsite where you can combine an extra couple of nights in a hotel to, to do a training event. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. And there's a sustainability dimension here because the Of course, um, yeah. You know, if companies are suddenly having carbon reduction targets to meet. And travel is um, is a huge component of that, especially business class travel. Uh, so uh, actually taking out that is a quite a dramatic way of being able to reduce carbon footprint. Training and digital procurement technology are both inherently related in the sense that Procurement often doesn't have a budget to do much. You know, we, we always joke that we spend other people's money, but we don't have a budget to do anything ourselves. How do you see the conversation around getting budget both for training and for digital transformation? Because this seems to be, you know, the more and more stuff that I read online now, most people, certainly the more progressive procurement professionals, acknowledge that there has to be a transition towards digital tools and that with this deluge of, of bureaucracy and compliance, it's going to come towards us for, for sustainability and compliance and governance. We're going to need to free up resources. And the only way to do that, looking at it very crudely, is automating as much of P2P and, and, and tactical work as possible. But the thing that everyone comes up across is, well, how do I convince my CFO? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the answer to that is, is really quite simple. It depends how the organization sees procurement. If, if procurement is the function that buys stuff, if the CFO is the decision maker here, which they often are, then what's the business case to invest in that? And, and procurement sort of struggles. It's that kind of, you know, can I have some more, please, sir? Uh, it's that kind of request. Um, and the hard reality is most organizations are still run based on pure financial metrics. The idea of driving an organization based on if we do this thing, it's going to bring this value and you know the, 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 the finances will take care of themselves. That's quite an alien concept to most organizations. It is how entrepreneurs work and it's how organizations such as Apple have become who they are because because uh, a very clever genius um, said, let's do this uh, because you know, I'm going to put a thousand songs in somebody's pocket and you know people are going to love it. And, and kind of those are how those decisions are made. In most organizations, it's not like that. So you're up against the, 
the fact that organizations are run based on financial metrics. The second bit to that is if procurement is just the function that buys stuff, then it's never going to be anything more than that. It has to say, look, actually procurement now is the transformational um, enabler of future success of this organization. And that's in terms of sustainability. We know that procurement's got the lead role to play in terms of driving sustainability in the supply chain, but also how you build brand advantage, competitive advantage, how you drive future success of the organization. All that comes from the supply base, but has to get there through clever procurement. So at a strategic level, the organization needs to understand what procurement is and needs to do. And then the investment needs to happen because both investing in sustainability and investing in digital transformation, digital transformation is the key enabler for the future. Uh, Way beyond automating uh, key purchase to pay, we'll automate the generic spend, that'll happen. But actually, you know, that's only the start. Actually, there's, there's many more layers to this, which companies are only just beginning to play at in terms of how you digitize procurement. And those will bring vast benefits to the organization in terms of increasing productivity of procurement, but that's the 10%. The rest is how much value you can get from the supply base to to increase competitive advantage. Yeah, and I completely agree with you that there is so much more that we can do beyond automation of procure to pay. But I think that the, the cold, hard reality is that Outside of Fortune 500, FTSE 100 businesses, yeah. if you think of this as a snakes and ladders board, if you played snakes and ladders when you were a kid, I know I did. I love that game. Yeah. I think most businesses, once you get beyond that layer of you know big international corporations, are somewhere between squares one and twenty on the on the, on the digital transformation map. So, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. There's a there's a we're only just scratching the surface with automating, you know, simple transactions. But I think if you had to pick somewhere, where would I start? I would probably take that just to free up resource yeah. for nothing more to, as to free up resource and to give people the the white space to spend on you know important things that we need to do now, like. Make, auditing our supply chain to make sure that our suppliers are working ethically and, uh, and are thinking sustainably. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a long journey, but a lot of them are, are just at the start. You've done a lot of writing in the past. I mean, you've authored five books. Maybe, yeah. maybe first of all, just if you could walk the listener through what each of those five were, and then I'll move on to the second part of what I wanted to ask you. Okay, good, and and um and and I know this is a podcast, but and uh, I can see you, but behind me they're they're all they're all lined up on my bookshelf, <laughs> including the Chinese translations and the Swedish translations there. So that's my that's my shelf of pride there. So five titles: Category Management in Procurement, which um was first was first arrived in two thousand and nine, has become the kind of staple of how you do category management taught in universities all around the world. Supply relationship management uh, and how you drive more value from key and important supplier relationships and uh, a negotiation for procurement and supply chain professionals. And those three are designed to work together as a strategic trilogy that um, actually, if you do those three well, you're doing strategic procurement really well. Then there's sustainable procurement, which is the most recent publication, which is the, the backbone of how you drive sustainability across your entire supply base and integrates with the other three that I just mentioned. And finally, the buyer's toolkit, which is slightly off to one side, which is kind of all the others distilled down 
to show you how to how to be effective at buying. If you don't understand strategic procurement or you don't know procurement, it tells you and gives you a toolkit for really good buying. Got it. So which of those specific areas, when it comes to the prospects of digital technology disrupting yeah. and revolutionizing an, an existing process, out of all of those, which ones are you the most excited about in terms of what technology could do in an ideal world? Yeah, and there's two of those actually, and we're already doing quite a bit of work on that. So the first is category management, because category management is the key strategic approach for how you drive the maximum value you can for what you buy. Um, most organizations don't get it right, but it only really works if you can look at all of the spend for a category that reflects how a marketplace is organized. So it's a process and approach that's based upon sound economic principles. But the thing is, the kind of world that it exists in changes. And I often hear people saying, hey, what's the, what's the thing that's going to replace category management in this digital world? And the answer is really simple. Nothing's going to replace it. That's like saying, hey, what digital tool is going to replace gravity? I'm waiting to float. You know, there isn't such a thing. But what it will do is digitization will transform how we apply category management. And we, we are well down the road with our Capella tool, which is the, which combines artificial intelligence with being able to work through the traditional category management process. And whereas previously you would work through that, the success of the category strategy that you implemented would come from the fact that you had worked the tools, understood the market, engaged with the business, figured out um, the different strategic sourcing options and come up with a strategy that you then implement for how you will source a particular area of spend. And traditionally people would work on templates, work in cross-functional teams and drive in that sort of strategy. If done well, that achieved breakthrough benefits, 10, 20, 30% in terms of pure price, but also value typically. However, many organizations don't do it well and only get a few percent because they don't really apply the rigor. So one of the big issues is, is not being able to apply adequate rigor. This is where intelligence can can help. So by by taking away that elements of that human um, uh, interaction and keeping that for the real kind of strategic categories, for the general categories, what you can do is you can actually have those tools and process steps that sit within um, an intelligent app that as you enter into in information about your category, it guides you towards a category strategy. And that's what Capella does. Our Capella tool does that and brings intelligence to say, based on this situation, then this is the sort of strategy we should be heading for. Bring big data into that and you have a situation where you've got a category strategy based on real-time data, add in geopolitical data about what's happening in the world, um, add in uh, data about what's happening with your suppliers and you suddenly automate um, most of category management to give you the right sourcing strategy based on a real-time intelligent application. That is so exciting. We are part way down the road with that, with the first step, and we're, the, the data bit will come later. Um, but, you know, we're, we're there doing that, and that excites me. So uh, Capella is our way of doing that. But we still, I would say the adoption of that is still early because most of the companies that we are working with saying, yeah, I'm interested in that. Just give us the capability to help us do category management well to start with. You know, most companies are still right. kind of um, at, at first base on this stuff. 
When you say they're at first base, do you think it's because they just perceive it to be a box-ticking exercise with a standard template or that they're just struggling to get their stakeholders to buy into the fact that procurement is you know, steering the direction rather than rather than them, you know, uniquely, you know, that the, the procurement has a part to play in that as ultimately custodians of the spend. Yeah, the, the, the reason is, it's really hard to do it well. Training people in the tools is the easy bit. Giving people good templates to follow is the easy bit. That's the 1%. The 99% is then engaging with the business and challenging what the business are doing, um, especially when the business believes that it's their decision, they own the suppliers, um, you know, why are procurement getting involved? That's the hardest bit. And, and so that needs some, you know, some tough approaches. But it, it, also, uh, it also means the organization really needs to drive in the rigor so people are really understanding the markets, looking at those breakthrough possibilities. How do we do this differently? Asking those questions. Um, and that is really hard to do. Most of the organizations we work with will train everybody, will equip them with the processes. Some do that and achieve astonishing results. Others will, six months' time, say, we're struggling to get the traction uh, and how can we get the governance driven in? How can we do this more? And, and you're really sort of trying to change hearts and minds, change behaviors, change an entire organization to do category management properly. Because it's not a procurement thing, it's an organization-wide thing, and it needs hard change, change and transformation to drive it in. So few make it. Those that do reap amazing rewards. Yeah, and that's a great answer because you can have really good software that can speed up you know, the end-to-end cycle of being able to put a category strategy together. And I remember when I when I was doing category strategies as a practitioner, the most painful thing was always getting the spend because everyone's spend date is always a mess. But, yeah. you know, it took a long time to put these presentations together. So that's the one thing. But then, like you say, making sure that they then just don't sit in a desk drawer, yeah. especially if you've gone out and bought some software to, to help you generate them. It's It's seeing that ROI. And as you said, it's such a... It's so political, isn't it? That yeah. procurement is at the is really at the fulcrum of putting that together. And you know, in many organisations, they're just not, and it's they're almost seen as being in as intruding in, in into marketing or IT or or capex. You know, when you're putting together some of the more contentious direct materials, I guess it's somewhat easier. But yeah, you hit on a real nerve, I think. There, yeah, sure. So the most recent book, as you said, is about sustainable procurement. I wanted to just start to round this up by talking about some ways that you think perhaps technology can help procurement professionals to embed sustainability principles into uh, sourcing and supplier management activities. Or, Or are we perhaps approaching this the wrong way and we just need to go back to what I said earlier and just make sure that we've got all of our P2P and all of our more transactional processes automated, which in turn will will free up the white space to to get our heads around how do we how do we approach sustainability at all? You know, will it even be managed completely by procurement? Yeah, so it's it's freeing up time to do um, in terms of transactions isn't going to do a lot. Organizations, of course, need to do that, but freeing up time to work on sustainability won't change very much at all. Um, it's it's about having the tech, but more importantly, about having the data and the visibility, data visibility, transparency. Because if we're going to drive sustainable procurement, we need to understand what we buy, 
We need to understand who we buy it from and get really close to our suppliers. But more importantly, we need to understand our entire supply chains, which um, perhaps transition many contractual steps to different geographies with intermediaries who are desperate to hide what happens upstream from us because it will compromise their their uh, viability and so on. And up until now, we've never really needed to kind of look at supply chains too hard. But the new supply due diligence legislation in Germany and that is about to become legislation across Europe is changing that because big organizations will now be responsible for everything that happens in the supply chain. And that's the kind of, that's the start because that principle will roll out far and wide across the entire globe and will come from big companies down to every company. So once we didn't need to be concerned what happened beyond our immediate supplier, now we have to understand everything that happens in our supply chains and be responsible for them. That creates the imperative to act and technology will do that. We have to be able to understand all of the entities in our supply chain, what they do, um, who's employed, how it happens, where stuff happens, what the processes are. Uh, we also need to understand how much carbon they're producing as well because we will be paying for that if, uh, uh, in, at some future point in time. And that, of course, is the basis to to then figure out how we drive improvements. So being able to understand an original farmstead uh, in an underdeveloped country or an original factory or an original mine um, and get right back to that point. And we can start measuring things like carbon um, and start figuring out the, the amount of CO2 produced. Hard to measure things like human rights, uh, attitudes towards uh, gender equality, working hours, um, where the children are employed, hard to start measuring that stuff unless you're actually doing audits. And, and then, you know, it's a bit hit and miss. So it becomes around data. You know, if you have a mine where stuff is being legitimately uh, mined, um, and this is, we're seeing this right now in the EV battery world where um, the, the big um, uh, EV providers are saying, you know, we, we take sustainability seriously and we're, we're managing this stuff, but yet you go to where the, the open mines are and yeah, their bit's legitimate, but you've got children working outside, mining, doing open mining. That stuff finds its way into the supply chain because somebody's corrupt somewhere. It's that technology that allows us to see every single step of, of what happens, every single transaction, every person involved. People talk a lot about blockchain technology here. Yes, this is, this is where it'll work, this single point of truth um, for every movement of everything. But that's only the start. It's not just about tracking how things move. It's about seeing what happens and knowing who's involved. And that's about data. Companies like EcoVardis are, are starting doing this with their assessment system. Um, and even that's still quite early days, but it's, it's an incredible kind of first start because we can now access information about suppliers and that data will build. In the future, it'll be less around remote assessments, more around first-hand real-time data about what is happening at that point in the supply chain right now that gives us the information that we need. Got it. So it's, yeah, data, data visibility and, 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 and being able to go beyond your first tier then in summary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's move on then before we wrap this up. Just talk to us a little bit about, you, you spoke already about Capello, which is your category strategy management tool. Yeah. What are the other SaaS tools that you have within your toolkit? Yeah, so we're really proud of um, of, our, of our SaaS tools. We've pivoted in probably the last sort of seven years mainly. We started the, the, the journey 15 years ago to um, to start having a platform. 
Um, and now we're, um, we're, we're quite a strong player and with some real exciting things. So we've got our Proclius ecosystem, which is the platform for procurement um, people that are looking to do strategic procurement. And that does a number of things, gives you access to the processes, the tools and the resources for things like category management, supplier relationship management, negotiation and sustainable procurement. Either using the traditional approach of having process um, and and templates, which is still uh, how most companies like to, to operate. Um, we have a vast e-learning library, so we're coupling process with e-learning because you can't really learn about strategic procurement unless you have a process to follow. You can't separate those two out. It astonishes me how there are people that will teach things like category management, but there's no process. Well, that doesn't work. You know, it's it's got to have a process. So there's a full learning suite in there across all of those areas. Um, assessment tools to be able to assess the capability of a procurement function in terms of procurement and negotiation, and then develop tailored learning um, programs within the Proclius environment, um, and then workflow. And this is where we, um, we, we come kind of out of the Proclius environment, because whilst they're part of that, we also have the Capella and the Ruby tool and the Bias toolkit. Capella, guided category strategy creator. You let Capella help guide you to a strategic category strategy that you can then input and either you let it do the work or you open the hood and you start getting in there and working the tools as well because the 5i methodology is embedded. Then there's Ruby, which does the same for negotiation. So the guided negotiation plan creator using intelligence to help guide you to having a negotiation plan that you will then go and use all um, powered by the Red Sheet negotiation methodology, which is a core offering of what we have. And finally, the Buyer's Toolkit, a, a guided approach to develop a simple buying plan for simple areas of spend, non-procurement tool for sort of general stakeholders and those in small companies to use. So we're really proud of that, um, that selection of uh, software as a service tools. And I think the biggest growth area for us is Capella and Ruby moving into the future because those automated tools using intelligence will really drive things. And then coming back to the training, we see a huge shift there as well to um, avatar-based training in multi-languages because we've got, we've got probably the biggest body of training content of, of any provider out there available digitally. And actually, if we, and we already have it in several languages, but if we can have that automatically available in multiple languages all over the world, that changes the game. So, you know, big, exciting things, big on intelligence uh, and big on maximizing the huge content that we have already. Yeah, capability development's a huge one, actually. And I, I was speaking to two people separately yesterday, in fact, that are, that are both in that space and, I think this one has sort of snuck up on us a little bit in terms of what technology can do to drive innovation in that space. So yeah, I, I, I certainly agree that that has some huge potential and wrapping it alongside together other SaaS tools that, that you have within your ecosystem. I think it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very, it's a very joined up way of thinking, isn't it? Especially if you're using best of breed tools, but uh, you know, you've got them interconnected somehow. Yeah. Excellent. So Jonathan, if anyone would like to learn more about uh, any of the tools that you offer or your training programs uh, or your books even, uh, where should they reach out if they would like to discover more? So the best place to go is positivepurchasing.com. 
or redsheetnegotiation.com uh, if, uh, if it's just a negotiation tool, but you'll get everywhere from positivepurchasing.com. You can find, you can search for my podcast, which, uh, which you've been on, James, and that was a fabulous episode. I, I recommend you go and check that out. Um, the procurement show. Uh, .com, uh, and connect with me on LinkedIn under Jonathan O'Brien. Be really happy to engage with you. And I will link to all of those in the show notes. Jonathan, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. Always a pleasure talking to you. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on our show and talking all things digital. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. So that wraps up another episode of the ProcureTech podcast. Just a quick request from my side before we sign off. If you like the show, then please hop into Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen to us and give us a quick review so as we can appear a little bit higher up in the different procurement podcasts that are out there. There are lots of them these days. We wrote a blog post about it as well. Uh, Check that out on our website, procurementsoftware.site forward slash blog. And if you want to have a look what else is out there, including Jonathan's show, you will find them all there. Until next week, take care, look after yourselves, and bye for now. Bye.